Welcome to the final episode of season five of Real Decarbonization, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry will lead into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adamantine Energy. This series of mini pods accompanies my latest book, Real Decarbonization. And on today's show, I speak with Rama Varyankaval, Global Head of the Center for Carbon Transition, or CCT at JP Morgan. Rama has a BE in civil engineering and MS degrees in both structural engineering and in statistics and financial engineering. At JP Morgan, he also serves as the global head of corporate finance advisory. Rama started at the company as an associate in 2003. You can learn more about Rama's biography in our show notes. Now, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rama Baryankaval. Rama, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the Real Decarbonization podcast. Thank you, Lisha. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So JP Morgan is being hit by these same crosswinds that so many of our listeners are, which is um, on one side, pressure to accelerate action on climate. And then on the other, this anti-ESG, anti-woke capitalism, for short, pushback. How do you think about your work at CCT, the Center for Carbon Transition? How do you navigate those those crosswinds? Sure. Um, Look, uh, again, thank you for having me. Just for background, I would say that CCT, or the Center for Carbon Transition, was set up about three years back here at JP Morgan with a dual mandate. One was to design and implement JP Morgan's strategy as it pertains to climate and sustainability broadly, relating only to our client-facing businesses, and then to also help our clients think through these same issues. Right. So we have had the dual mandate, and we have, um, I think, been consistent to that dual mandate. We have spent a lot of time thinking about the right strategy for JP Morgan, and also spent a lot of time with our clients thinking about the issue from their perspective. If you look at just the climate issue, or the carbon issue specifically, the work is clearly pretty complex, and it's easy enough to be critical of anything that anyone is doing. But from our perspective, from the get-go, we said that this was going to be long and complicated path. And if anything, the events, the geopolitical events of the last couple of years have only further emphasized how long and complicated the path might be. Mm-hmm. Not to say that you know we expected that to happen, but we did expect that, that we were in for a non-linear ride. And our message, again, from the very beginning, that energy transition and energy security needed to be thought of in conjunction. And you couldn't really solve for one without solving for the other. That's been a consistent message for us. And having said that from the beginning, in a way, it's easy for us to just stay true true to that. And everything we are doing on a day-to-day basis with our clients is very consistent with that message. And, you know, the second part of your question, to be very honest, I never use the term ESG or very, very rarely use the term ESG. It can be a useful shorthand in, in some ways, but... I worry that the term has passed its expiration date, to be honest. Mm-hmm. It has too many things that are embedded within ESG. Even a strict definition of ESG has too many things within it. And of course, people often use it more loosely to mean even more things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's pretty clear to us that you can't really build a business strategy thinking of all of those things as a, you know, as a one you know, uh, factor, you have to be very deep and specific about issues that are relevant to 
any business you run, whether it's our business or our client's business. And so that's how we think about it and avoid using ESG and trying to build consensus or build a strategy that fits across so many different factors. So that's helped in a way. Well, there's a lot interesting in what you said. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because you are such a nuanced thinker about how complex this is and that those myriad interwoven factors such as geopolitics and energy security. I'm really interested about this idea of moving beyond the term ESG because just a couple of weeks ago I wrote, and I will say it was like a working hypothesis that we were going to have to move beyond ESG and probably back into some kind of sustainability, something that has that also incorporates financial stability, geopolitical stability. So something sustainable, as we like to say, the real sense of the word, like the many myriad facets. So it's interesting to hear you say that because it sounds like your thinking has been moving in that direction for quite some time. I have jokingly said that ESG was a term that was invented 15, 20 years back when none of the individual factors were rising to a level of importance and attention that they deserved. But now that many of the issues have, in fact, risen to the level of importance and attention from you know global stakeholders, it's time to, again, bury the term and focus on the specifics of whether it's climate, whether it's carbon, whether it's water, whether it's decarbonization, whether it's race, whether it's gender equity, whatever the case might be, right? Governance issues. We need to kind of really tackle each of them as an individual issue that deserves our attention and time. I really agree with that. And the other point that that raises is sometimes carbon becomes the like the only guiding light, the only North Star. And the trade-offs with these many other factors is so important because they impact our ability to reduce carbon. But if we only look at, if we oversimplify this as a carbon transition, as opposed to an evolution of, of an energy system, we're going to miss a lot of opportunities to make progress. So really interesting. Let me build on this by asking about how you think about the translating aspiration in, in these areas and in all of the areas that you mentioned and verifiable action because JP Morgan was the first large US bank to establish 2030 portfolio level emission reduction targets. And I imagine, and you've added to those over time, but how do you think about that relationship between aspiration, which is so important for directional progress, but then this idea of of proving a verifiable progress, both for the bank and for your portfolio? Sure. I think such an important question. And you're right. We were the first large U.S. bank to announce our intent to set targets. We announced intention in fall of 2020. And then in um, spring of 2021, we put targets on three sectors uh, for financed emissions, if you will. Uh, These are oil and gas power and auto sectors. And then we have since added, we have added uh, iron and steel, cement, and uh, aviation to our um, scope of targets. So for each of these industrial sectors, our targets are based on carbon intensity and their 2030 intermediate targets at the JP Morgan portfolio level. Right? So that's, you know, if you will, aspiration. But that's only half the job. It's an important piece of the puzzle, clearly, to show commitment and show aspiration is important. But then we've spent the, the last two or so years building a foundation to make sure we can actually make progress towards these aspirations and these targets. And the building block 
for that is something we talk actually quite a bit about in our climate report that we published in December. It's called the Carbon Assessment Framework. So think of that as a mechanism for us to, to try and measure where a particular client is, a particular transaction is in the context of our portfolio and our target, and to make decisions based on rigor and objectivity as opposed to subjectivity and qualitative factors. Right? And again, the climate report talks a little bit about how we think about it. And to me, that foundation is very important because now we know how decisions are made. Right, consistently across J.P. Morgan, whether it's in the investment bank, whether it's in the commercial bank, we have one rubric, one framework to think about the issue, and we know if we are making progress or not. If we are not, what do we need to do to course correct? Right. So I would say that's kind of the the foundation of how we think about making progress. We did publish uh, where we were in terms of uh, having made progress for the first three sectors, oil and gas, power, and autos, in the same climate report from December of last year, and we have a commitment to publish progress on an annual basis, and we will do that again this year. So we think, again, that's important to not just have a 2030 target, but be transparent about um, progress we are making or not making and how we think about uh, addressing that. The other thing I will say is around the same time that we published our Paris targets, we also said that we want to finance or facilitate a trillion dollars in so-called green projects or green companies over the same 10-year period. And we have also published progress on that in the ESG report that we published in typically the spring of each year. In two years since we put the target out, we have done about $175 billion of such financing or facilitation. So that's another target that we, we you know follow closely that gives us in many ways, an option to option to not just talk to clients about our expectation in terms of energy transi- transition, but we can also go tell our clients how we can help as a bank. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. What kind of financing are we able to provide? What kind of help are we able to provide? So I think of these two targets, the finance emissions targets and our trillion-dollar green financing targets uh, target as very, very much linked and we need to um, keep making progress on both, I would say. So we'll link to your climate report in the show notes. And the thing that's really incredible about getting to talk to you about this, Rama, is one thing that's often overlooked is the need for scale and the energy transition. And JP Morgan's ability to influence energy projects, uh, energy financing, and the scale of the number of companies and sectors you can touch is is just incredible. So I'd love to just pick on, you know, what what we are interested in with our audience here, which is your work with the oil and gas industry. I'm interested what you've learned in your in your work to date with your oil and gas clients um, that might help our listeners think about this translation of aspiration to action, the difference between sort of like virtue signaling, ESG, you know, which and greenwashing versus real engagement and sustainable uh, changes in the transition. What have you learned along the way that other oil and gas companies might might help accelerate their journey? Again, for context, I would say that the JP Morgan oil and gas portfolio has about 250 or so clients globally. And to make the very obvious point, they're all, it's a very diverse set of clients in terms of the geography they operate in, the size and scale, the aspirations, their starting point, et cetera, right? 
So some of what I might say may sound like generalizations because they are, but broadly speaking, I would say that when we intended to put targets on our financing uh, portfolio, the oil and gas sector was the first one that we went and engaged with to want to tell them what uh, our intentions were, but to really solicit feedback. And really from that point on, which is now almost three years back to date, I think uh, observation I have is by and large, the ambitions or the aspirations of the industry are not dissimilar to ours. Mm. Right? They think of it, they think of energy transition as critically important and also as the next stage of their business strategy. Right? Mm-hmm. And then the question becomes, well, how do you design this business strategy to be consistent with your sustainability strategy and your financing strategy? Right? Mm-hmm. Because if those are not involved in sync, then you probably are not going to succeed. That's mm-hmm. true for our clients. That's true for us, of course, JP Morgan, right? You have to kind of uh, move these along uh, in a consistent manner. And the challenges in the oil and gas sector are, you know, you have to make many, many decisions with imperfect information. There are a range of possible decarbonization paths, of course, right? You could become a operator of renewable assets, solar and wind, where the technology risk might not be very high, but the return profile of that looks very different than the business that you're used to running, which is a volatile commodity business. So how do you reconcile those two things? What's the right financing mix if that's the path you want to take? Or do you go to the other end of the spectrum and then invest in more nascent technologies, like whether it's green hydrogen or whether it's carbon capture, where the again the technology risks and the scale risks are quite material at this point in time. And do you make the decision that while the odds perhaps are lower of success, the financing strategy for that is actually quite consistent with the balance sheet you balance sheet you already own. Mm-hmm. These are again highly um, or higher risk bets, right? So you have certain decisions to make. What path do you take? But the fundamental premise I have, and I think all our clients generally agree, is the sector is really well-placed to lead an energy transition. And as a general matter, they're well-capitalized. The commodity prices in the last couple of years has actually been a massive help. Right, Balance sheets are strong. Leverage is low. And they have the human capital. Right? They have the resources to actually lead in this transition. And they have the best hedge of all. Right? They have an, you know, a legacy business to run, which is cash generating. And if whatever new bets they place, if they work, that's fantastic. They're creating alternate sources of revenue. If for, our, for whatever reason, the new bets are not quite successful, that probably means their legacy business has more room to run. So it's from a again, financial perspective, they're quite well-placed to make these bets. And I know a number of them are investing quite heavily in kind of low-carbon solutions, broadly defined, um, whether it's through their own balance sheets, through JVs, through corporate venture arms. The specifics vary depending on who we are talking about, but broadly speaking, I think the sector is really moving very fast. It's, of course, music to my ears because the entire premise of this podcast is that the oil and gas industry is well positioned to lead into the energy future. So it is. But in some ways, it's a hypothesis because there's so much external 
opposition to oil and gas leadership. So I am interested and agree with your perspective, especially around these ideas of the legacy business and how well they position companies for oil and gas adjacent clean energy technologies, that their people, their infrastructure, and their business models are are well-suited to lead with. So let me ask you about that. Like oil and gas companies, I imagine JP Morgan falls under sort of constant critique for navigating the complexity and the longevity of the challenges ahead. How are stakeholders receiving your efforts? And talk a little bit about your carbon compass and just the response that you get from that effort. Sure. Just to maybe finish or a follow-up thought on the previous question, what I said clearly doesn't mean that everyone, every company is 100% positioned to lead and some of it there is a lack of will in some some quarters and to me that's unfortunate because i think it is a massive opportunity um, for the sector to lead and legislative recent legislative action whether it's the ira in the us or other legislative actions around the world but also chips and infrastructure in the us they have only re-emphasized to us the commercial opportunity available to those who are willing to lead Right? And that's true of oil and gas. That's true of banks, right? Absolutely. So the best-in-class companies in every sector will see the opportunity or seeing the opportunity and moving fast, right? And then, of course, there'll be winners and losers in every sector, including in the oil and gas sector. We just wanted to make that point. On to the carbon compass and stakeholder reaction. Again, carbon compass is the umbrella under which we are publishing our finance emissions targets. First one, as I said, was published in May of 2021. We've published one more edition since. Um, I think the stakeholder reaction has been very positive and not necessarily because they like our targets per se or any of that, but the most positive reaction to it has been the level of transparency that we have provided. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, We have put out kind of the recipe, if you will, of how we are measuring our, our baseline, how we thought about the targets, the open questions in our mind, right? The lack of quality data in all all areas. Um, We've been quite transparent about all of these challenges, the steps we are taking to address these challenges, either within the JP Morgan complex or working with other partners. That level of transparency has been appreciated. And I would say that even those stakeholders who at first glance might think that the either the our ambition isn't strong enough or we are going too fast. And again, there are people in both camps. Mm-hmm. When they spend half an hour with us or an hour with us and we walk through the specificities of how we are thinking about it, how everything we like doing is fact-based and data-driven and empirical and trying not to be emotional or subjective about the issue, I think most stakeholders walk away thinking that we are serious about what we do. And that, at the end of the day, is, I think, the... The objective, as I again, I joke that my job is to make everyone about equally unhappy at this point. Um, <laughs> and I think I'm being pretty successful at that. <laughs> well, Rama, I think that it's really encouraging because we do at Adam and Teen advise companies to engage in the complexity and articulate the knowns and the unknowns, the what we're able to do, what we're able to aspire, but we can't see the path. 
because I think the point you make that it demonstrates your seriousness, your willingness to engage. It's not that we have to have all the answers, but we do need to show an, an urgency and a authenticity in our energy transition work. And that's what I hear you conveying that you can, you can get like, of course, there are those who oversimplify. There are those who, who don't want a lot of various companies to participate, but there's still the broad middle that wants to see progress. And I think that's who we're all talking to. I wanted to to pivot to you for our last couple of questions, because you're, you're sitting in quite the hot seat and have for a few years running CCT. So I'm wondering as the world is evolving and expectations on you are in your business are changing, how are you evolving as a leader? Like in what ways are, what are you learning along the way and how are, how is your leadership style evolving? It's the biggest changes. I seem to be aging pretty fast. Uh, <laughs> this business will do that to us. <laughs> other than that, look, um, I've built my career. I've been at JP Morgan my entire career, just um, almost an even 20 years now. And my career has been built on storytelling using data is kind of the theme that runs through it. And this field actually is quite, uh, I think, quite uh, ripe for that because there's mm-hmm. a lot of storytelling that goes on just based on preconceived biases. And uh, to say that, look, put those aside, let's try to make progress with data and facts is actually a surprisingly open lane, if you will. Uh, so that's how. The other thing, you use the word authenticity. I think I use the word humility to mean mm-hmm. about the same thing. Mm-hmm. I think we are very humble as a firm, and I think I would say that for myself as well, that we don't know everything. There are lots of unknowns, but we have to be decisive. Just because there are unknowns doesn't mean we sit on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. As you said, JP Morgan, with our, you know, we will take $4 trillion balance sheet, our role in the capital markets, in global finance, we have a role to play, better responsibility. And so I don't think we can sit on the sidelines. Uh, so we have to be decisive in taking action, but combine that with, with the humility needed that new information will likely prove that some decisions we, we took were wrong and we need to course correct. So being open to that, I think is, an, is again, something that I think about a lot. And I know for a fact that I'm surrounded by people who know more about this than I am, right? Whether it's in really my own team, there are lots of people who know a lot more at the forum, absolutely, there are tons of people who know a lot more and in the industry there are people who know a lot more so learning from from all of these people and then making the best possible decisions under the face of uncertainty but then course correct when needed that's at least how i think about leading in this effort but it's definitely a team sport it's not an individual sport so i need the help for of everyone around Humility is such a nice leadership quality to embrace. I'm going to give that some thought in this work because we do need room to get some of these things wrong and not be paralyzed, especially in an industry dominated by scientists and engineers. We, we'd like to do all the math first, but there's going to, we don't have all the answers and we don't know what's going to work. So that's a, that's a lovely point to focus on there. So last question for you, Rama, what in your personal and or professional life, what are you optimistic about? I think I'm, look, I'm a optimistic person temperamentally, I think. So I'm optimistic about most things in life. Um, When it comes to energy transition or sustainability, we talk about trillions of dollars flowing across the capital markets for X, Y, or Z. And so the 
the financial capital that is behind this, and we talked about IRA and infrastructure and chips, et cetera, gets a lot of airtime, and that's clearly important. But what I find the most interesting is the human capital that's aligning behind this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's human capital within large companies or these startups that I have the privilege of meeting on a regular basis, young people starting companies. And that, to me, gives a, a massive sense of optimism because it's financial capital alone can't really solve any issue, I think. that can't But however, if you have the right amount of financial capital and the human capital behind it, I don't see any task as impossible. So to those who are very skeptical that this transition can happen, I point to the financial capital plus the human capital and say that you know, they will be proved wrong. There is no doubt mm-hmm. about it. And then look, the engineer and me would love to see nuclear fusion happen soon. Um, that perhaps <laughs> may take a little bit of time, but uh, but the broader energy transition, I actually stay quite optimistic about. Well, that's a wonderful place to end. I share your optimism of putting human ingenuity with financial capital and, and there's really no way to stop us. So thank you so much, uh, Rama, for joining me on the Real Decarbonization Podcast. Thank you, Tisha. This was fun. That's our episode for today and a wrap for season five. Thanks so much to Rama for joining me. And I think this was a great way to end a season about real decarbonization. And there's so many things I found interesting in that, that I'm not even sure what, which one to hit on, but the note we left it on, uh, the optimism of momentum around human ingenuity and available financing is really exciting. So I love ending on that optimistic note. I hope that you have enjoyed the Real Decarbonization podcast. It would be wonderful if you would take a moment to rate and review this podcast to help other people find us. You can learn more about my book at realdecarbonization.com and you can find out about our work at adamantine at energythinks.com. I want to thank Adon Rubio for making this podcast possible until later in the summer when I'll return with season six for which we're already lining up some awesome guests. So I can't wait. I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health. <laughs>